This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Medical workers and hospitals are facing a crisis. Critical equipment like masks, gowns, test kits, and ventilators are running low as coronavirus patients flood in. In an attempt to address the shortage, earlier this month, President Trump invoked a law that many Americans had never heard of before. We'll be invoking the Defense Production Act just in case we need it. The Defense Production Act. This almost 70-year-old law gives the government the power to order businesses in the private sector to make goods that the country needs for national security purposes. Originally, the law was intended to help a president in a time of war. And for President Trump, the coronavirus pandemic is a war. We're at war. In a true sense, we're at war. And we're fighting an invisible enemy. Think of that. Nearly two weeks have passed since President Trump signed the executive order authorizing the use of the Defense Production Act. But in that time, he's been unwilling to actually use it. Until Friday, when he said he was invoking the law to force General Motors to accept a contract to make ventilators. Today on the show, the Defense Production Act. What this law could do to address critical shortages of medical supplies and why the president is still reluctant to use it to its full extent. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Monday, March 30th. So what is the Defense Production Act? Where did it come from, and why was it enacted in the first place? The Defense Production Act was enacted in 1950 during the beginning of the Korean War. Our colleague Andrew Rastusha covers the White House. And it effectively allows the government to compel companies to increase manufacturing of key products. It was specific to the defense industry at the time, so it would have been products needed to sort of aid in the war effort itself. For example, the Defense Production Act could allow the government to tell an airplane manufacturer, we need you to make fighter jets, and we need you to prioritize making those jets over making other types of planes. And on top of that, there's another part of the law that has to do with what happens to those jets after they're built. In some parts of the law, you can actually control the distribution and allocation of those products, where they go, and how quickly they get there. The government, to be clear, is not taking over these companies. They are not taking a stake in these companies or not sitting on the boards of these companies. They're just using the levers of government to push these companies to do something. The Defense Production Act, or DPA, has been used countless times since the Korean War. It was used to get night vision equipment to soldiers in Afghanistan, to restore levees and flood walls during storms and hurricanes, even to produce syringes during the swine flu epidemic. And a few weeks ago, when President Trump first signed the executive order authorizing the use of the DPA, it seemed like it could be a big help getting face masks, ventilators, and other equipment into the hands of doctors and healthcare workers. 
So the president invoked the Defense Production Act in a March 18th executive order. There was this initial feeling like a sense of relief from states and health officials. Wow, okay, he is stepping up and he's using this law. And that's not quite exactly what happened. In the 10 days since President Trump first invoked the law, there's been a public back and forth about whether the law was actually being used. There was some confusion last week when the FEMA administrator, Peter Gaynor, went on CNN in the morning and said, basically, we are going to use it. This is the first time we're going to use it. And it was a little bit vague as to what he meant, but there was a moment where like, okay, this is the first use, maybe more will come along. And by the end of the day, the Trump administration, including the president himself, got up at a press conference and said, actually, no, we're not using it yet. Uh, We still believe we don't need it. When asked about why it was so reluctant to use the DPA, the administration insisted that the law was more of an insurance policy. It gave them leverage over companies, but actually using it on a company wasn't necessary. What we're seeing on a purely voluntary basis, based on the leadership of this administration, we're seeing the greatest mobilization of the industrial base since World War II. This is Peter Navarro at a press briefing last week. He's the director of trade and manufacturing policy for the Trump administration. And so what we've seen with this outpouring of, of, of volunteers from private enterprise, we're, we're getting what we need without, without putting uh, the, the heavy hand of government down. Since the outbreak began, companies have volunteered to make medical equipment without any sort of presidential mandate. Ford and Tesla volunteered to help supply ventilators. Haynes promised to make millions of face masks. And there's one company that President has pointed to as an example of what the free market can do in a crisis, a company called Pernod Ricard. Pernod Ricard, which is, uh, this is really an example where uh, we're repurposing alcohol. They went out and repurposed their alcohol production capabilities in Arkansas. Kentucky, Texas, and West Virginia to make hand sanitizer. Pernod Ricard is the liquor company behind brands like Absolute Vodka and Jameson Whiskey. Soon after the pandemic reached the U.S., the company announced that it would start using its distilleries to produce much-needed hand sanitizer. We can make up to 1,000 gallons every two hours if it goes into a drum. If they actually go into physical bottles, it takes us a full day. We are ramping up to be producing up to 20,000 gallons a week. This is Ann McCurgy. I'm the chairman and CEO of Pernod Ricard North America. We talked to Ann last week. She says that when Pernod's head of manufacturing suggested that they repurpose equipment to make hand sanitizer, she signed off on it immediately. They had their distilleries up and running in 48 hours. Given that we were seeing very quickly the shortages on hand sanitizer, and given the fact that We basically make the very base of hand sanitizers, which is ethanol. The first step was learning how to take our ethanol and denature it because our ethanol is drinkable. What Um, What does that mean exactly, denature it? So you have to basically change the composition of the ethanol such that human beings don't actually want to drink it. Uh huh. You know, it really was our organization, our teams, the people on the ground who said, Why can't we turn this into something positive and help the communities? Was there a business analysis of the decision, or was it purely we have the capability and we should help and therefore we will? Yeah, zero business assessment. It was all around capability and our ability to do it and do it fast. 
We're a very entrepreneurial organization, and we just went and did it, period. President Trump has the ability to use the Defense Production Act, which would compel or, or give the government the ability to compel companies to, to do things like make hand sanitizer and other supplies. Would that have made a difference for Pernod had that been a factor? Not at all. I mean, we actually didn't even know about the act at the time we were making the decision. It was purely out of concern for what was going on in the world. And by the way, we're still making high volumes of our own brands. But what our teams did was they dug deep and they said, hey, wherever we have excess capacity, wherever we can shift production around and still meet our business needs, we're going to go do it. How will you be getting the hand sanitizer to people? Giving it away or selling it or? Oh, no, we are not selling any of this. You know, we want to do this the right way. This is not about any commercial benefit. We are not branding this with our brands. This is all being given to the government free of charge for them to dispense and distribute as they see fit in areas of need and crisis. Anne isn't sure how much this new effort is going to cost Pernod, even as the company is projecting a 20% drop in profit as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. She says that whatever the costs are, she's committed to absorbing them. We as CEOs and as leaders have multiple levers at our disposal, and we need to exercise them now. And if we think about cost in a way that is just economic and not societal, for the long term, that's a bad decision. And I think this is the time to take that long-term view and not worry about the short-term impact and really work together to do it on our own. But many of the healthcare workers fighting on the front lines are still concerned that efforts from private companies like Pernod won't be enough to cover the supply shortages. That's after the break. How well do we know the people we work with every day? We share lunches, jokes, and deadlines, but are we aware of the unseen struggles we often face silently? Stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or feeling misunderstood at work. Through insight, awareness, and empathy, we can start to better see the issues our coworkers are dealing with, and that can make us and our companies healthier, too. Join Holly Robinson-Pete and her guests on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. Hiring with Indeed, your search is over. With over 350 million global monthly visitors and candidate matching technology, Indeed helps you find quality candidates fast. As a listener of this show, Indeed is giving you a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash thejournalpod. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back. Even as private companies have voluntarily started producing things like hand sanitizer and face masks, healthcare workers are saying that these shortages are more than the private sector can handle. Based on my conversations with the frontline emergency room doctors that I've been talking to, if it is a metaphor to compare to a a war, I would say that they feel woefully unprepared to fight the battle. Stephanie Armour covers health policy. There were some nurses who 
tweeted pictures of themselves using garbage bags that they had turned into personal protective equipment to help shield their clothing. I've talked to emergency room doctors who they're supposed to change out of personal protective equipment when treating someone who has COVID-19 and then going to another patient that does not. And they're just wearing the same outer protective equipment because there's not enough to change. Ventilators remain a huge issue because that can make a difference between life and death for some of these individuals. One emergency room doctor at one point was down to a single ventilator. What are you hearing from your sources about what the impact will be if hospitals can't get these items quickly? Uh, Well, people will die. I don't think there's any question. On Friday, President Trump made a move to address one aspect of these shortages, ventilators. This afternoon, I invoke the Defense Production Act to compel General Motors to accept, perform, and prioritize federal contracts for ventilators. Ventilators are a big deal. Trump announced he was using the DPA on GM to order them to ramp up production of ventilators, saying GM had been, quote, wasting time in negotiations. This invocation of the DPA should demonstrate clearly to all that we will not hesitate to use the full authority of the federal government to combat this crisis. By the end of the weekend, the president changed his tune. He was praising GM, saying the company was doing a fantastic job. GM expects to eventually produce 10,000 ventilators a month. And then on Monday morning, Trump said he only brought up the DPA with GM as leverage. In other words, the administration may not have used the DPA to force GM to accelerate its plans. Then there's the other aspect of the DPA, the power it gives the government over distribution to dictate where those ventilators and other supplies will go once they're made. The Trump administration hasn't seemed to make use of that power either. Normally, during times of crisis, there isn't much of a question about where to send supplies. If a hurricane hits New Orleans, you can send supplies from California. But we've never been in a situation where every hospital in every state is preparing for the same disaster all at once. And in the absence of federal guidance, states and hospitals are pitted against each other. President Trump at one point had directed states to get their own ventilators. So, you know, they basically have people around the clock who are working just on getting supplies. They've had to pay really marked up prices for supplies. A number of states tried to bid on ventilators or other supplies that were available and then reported that they were going up against the federal government, who was also bidding but had far more ability and clout and resources to get the supplies. That's incredible. So states are in a bidding war for supplies against other states and against the federal government? That has occurred, yeah. It's been a difficult process in terms of trying to get supplies. This is a major reason why public health officials are calling for the Trump administration to use the DPA. And it's not just public health officials. Manufacturers are also asking for direction from the federal government. Here's Andrew again. You have companies that are producing and distributing this equipment that don't know where to send it. They are looking to the administration for guidance on that. They're being inundated with orders from all over the country. And if you're a smallish maker of surgical masks, it's really difficult to make those potentially life-saving decisions about which hospitals get the orders first. 
You could use the DPA, which allows the government to essentially come in and control the allocation of these supplies. So that the government would come in and say, okay, you know, Factory X in Omaha needs to send their masks to New York Presbyterian first because they are in dire need of them and, you know, so on and so forth. And so these companies are also calling on the administration to step in and say, let's prioritize this. Here's where you should send X. Here's where you should send B. This is where they need Y. And so far, the administration has been uh, reluctant to step in to control the allocation of these supplies. Administration officials say the White House hasn't found it necessary to use the DPA to direct the distribution of supplies. Where do you think we stand now? Do you think there's still going to be pressure to use the DPA? Yeah, I mean, I think you're going to see continued pressure on the administration to use this because it's sort of the one tool that they haven't fully tapped yet. If you're a healthcare worker in New York and you don't have the supplies you need and there's an option to compel companies to make more of those supplies, it seems like a no-brainer to you that you would want it to be used, right? And if you're uh, working in the government and from your perspective you're seeing everyone that you're talking to is saying, okay, let's you know, we're willing to work with you, you're not necessarily seeing a need to use it right now. And so I think what you're seeing is people sort of talking past each other and viewing things from their individual perspectives here. So until there's more of a direct conversation between these workers and these uh, local officials and the federal government to come up with a better solution, I think you're going to still see people making their arguments on either side. That's all for today, Monday, March 30th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. If you like the show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We're out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.